the world is full of questions and actually our brains are wired in a way where we hear a question we don't know the answer to, we, we get curious. Hi, I'm Holly Ransom and welcome to Coffee Pods, a podcast devoted to fueling your difference. Here at Coffee Pods, we have a simple hypothesis that in the mere amount of time it takes to share a cup of coffee with someone, we can tap into a lifetime of experience. And that's exactly what we aim to do here at Coffee Pods, to give access to some incredible individuals who've marched to the beat of their own drum and who are willing to share their advice, their highs, their lows, their insights, in order to help give each and every one of us the toolkit and the inspiration to fuel the difference that we're trying to make in our own lives, communities and organisations. Francis Valentine, thank you so much for making the time to join us on Coffee Pods. It is so great to be here. I was interested reading about your background. You grew up on a farm in New Zealand. What was childhood like for you? It was just a process of discovery. I mean, I had a limitless backyard and sheds full of things that I could explore and pull together and and an imagination, I guess, that made it extremely exciting and, and loved it. It's true, isn't it, that often, you know, you, you think about childhoods growing up where time was spent playing outdoors and exploring in nature. And I've got to, can't help but think that's in sharp contrast to the world a lot of our kids are growing up in now, where sort of the screen and the device and Fortnite are taking up 99% of their leisure time. Yeah, it's so true. And I think it, it is hard because we also want to put back on this experience we had as a child onto our children. And actually, it's quite hard to realise that perhaps that's not what they want. We, we are a product of our time. But I'm also a great believer in the great outdoors. So my kids get out as much as they can. So, I mean, I've read your bio. You've done some extraordinary things over the course of your life. You've started some amazing companies, studied degrees, travelled all around the world, you know, have been having impact in education for over two decades. How did you go from a girl growing up on a farm in New Zealand to that sort of trajectory? I really wish I could say it was a plan, you know, <laughs> it was some great kind of structure around it, but it really was so organic. It was one of those things where I was very mission driven and education came about completely by default. Um, and in fact, you can almost tie it back to the first Gulf War, to the reason that I'm in really? education. Uh, at the time, I was living in Turkey and, and the British consulate knocked on the door and said, well, you have to leave. There's a war going on. So I ended up going back to New Zealand and I found the first job that took me back out, outside the country and it ended up in education. Wow. And so it took me on a different journey. And I just love this idea that people can be whoever they want to be through education. There is literally no limit. And, and even though there are some subjects people would say, well, you need to have a certain intellect to be able to pursue it. There are also many other, you know, incredible, exciting careers where it's not just about based around intellect, but about practical sense and talent and skills. And so I've seen people who really didn't believe in what they could do become the most incredible people just through knowledge. And so obviously you landed on education as sort of what you wanted to have a footprint in, but you've, you've taken that so expansively. Who were the early influences that helped you to see sort of the, the world as your playground as opposed to just the classroom perhaps? I think probably I'm... I'm a great example of someone who's so curious that actually once I finished uh, university, or sorry, when I finished high school, I was about to go to university, I just couldn't quite understand why I would do it. Like I couldn't understand what the logic was. I had so many interests. So at 17, I jumped on a plane to London. Wow. And it's hard to imagine for some people that this is a time where there is no cell phones, no internet, no credit cards. You know, so once you landed, uh, you're on your own. And so every day you're, you're, it's, there's a bit of survival and there's a bit of intrigue and discovery and you're constantly mixing with people who you'd never mixed with normally. And for me, that made me realise that 
you know, there was all this learning happening outside the classroom. Mm. And it took me a long time actually to get back into formal education again, which is kind of ironic. But, but, it, <laughs> but, it, but it did really show to me there's a lot of people who don't value what they've learned and the things that they've achieved because they want the certificate to show it. Mm. And so I sort of set up a lifelong journey to say, how do we make sure people value who they really are and what they can be without being totally focused on you know, what certificate do you have? And you've actually become part of a campaign recently, right, which is about the idea that you don't need the piece of paper uh, to, to feel accomplished or to be able to take your place in the world. Yeah, look, it was amazing. It was uh, just under a year ago in New Zealand, we started a campaign called No Qualifications Needed, and it was actually fronted by a local bank and KPMG, and they basically were testing the water around education because we have a, a real talent shortage like you do here in Australia. And the logic behind it was, why do we put the qualification that's needed in our job ads when we never hire for that reason? We hire because of the people we like and because they're great communicators and there's all these other reasons. And so we, we tested it and we went out to a whole lot of New Zealand companies and said, would you remove that requirement to have a qualification and that so we're not saying you don't have to have a qualification or that they may have one, but actually just remove it from all your job ads so it's not a barrier. And we thought we might get 10 or 20 companies. We end up with 220 wow. who represent the largest companies in New Zealand. And so 70% of all of the companies in New Zealand who, sorry, 70% of all employees in New Zealand outside of government now work for these companies who have said, actually, in today's world, the qualifications are, are not as worth as much as some of the soft skills and the collaboration and the technical skills and, and the creativity and the innovation. And so, you know, we just need to reframe that conversation and prioritise what we're really looking for in people and then say, how do we measure the skills they have? It may be formal or it may be completely informal. And I love that. I, I want to talk about this future of work piece with you because I love the fact that you've been talking about this before this became a common turn of phrase, right? I mean, I feel like in the last couple of years, all of a sudden we're all future of work. We're all talking about disruption and what's happening to skills, but you've been on this journey for a long time. A long, long time. Tell me when it comes to your, when you talk about future of work, how do you try and paint the picture for people of where we're going and what we need to be doing to get ready for that? I was thinking about even on today, you know, on, the, on the flight over and thinking about, this idea of an ambush. Like I feel like right now people don't understand that they are literally be ambushed, that this change has happened so fast that this is not about the future of work. The very word future implies it's something in the distance. Yeah. Actually, it's the now work. But if we say that, people go, well, I don't see it because we typically spend time with people who are just like us. Mm. And so if, if you are a senior executive and you're working in a large organization and you took yourself away from the group of people you're normally with and you hung out in the you know, in the cafe at work with a bunch of millennials and Generation Z and talked about their world and how they see the world, you suddenly realise there's no commonality. They literally are fully digital and we still live in an analogue world and we're sort of trickling into digital, but we're typically doing it as a consumer. Mm. You know, we, we're really good at using, you know, Google to search for things and booking our holidays online, but when you start talking to young people, they just imagine an entirely different world. So going back to the future of work, I keep saying, if the majority of the world right now are young, so contrary to, to belief, actually 50% of the world are under the age of 30. Mm -hmm. They have the ability to disrupt the ways we can't even imagine. They are increasingly knowledgeable, far more educated than we ever were by comparable generations, but also they're much more middle class, they're much more informed, and of course they're connected. Mm. And so the rules of one country just literally by rapid fire, like a tsunami, cross the world and suddenly work changes right beneath our feet. And it's the structures of business that's changing. 
no one's setting out today to create a hierarchical business with a corner office where the, you know, the, where the senior execs sit. It's all about trying to solve problems, collaborate together, often remote workers working on problems. It's the, you know, the computation is the kind of the manpower or the brain power between these people. You know, they're actually connecting in ways and creating companies literally in an agile space that has no assets. You know, they're intangible and they are the ones who are giving traditional business a real run for their money. And so I look at it and go, you know, I feel like we've been speaking about it for a few years, maybe five, let's be generous. But I feel when I look at substantive change, and I'm talking about in legacy systems, so corporate structures transforming, when I think about the education system, uh, making moves to respond, I see see some great... um, leading lights or points of light is probably the way to talk about it. People are leaning in, leaders who've gone, I see it and I'm going to do something about it. But on the whole, I still feel like we're dragging our, our feet a little bit. Is that your view? I, the conversations I have with large corporations are very different than small agile corporations mm. or organisations. And I, I do think there is an element of blinkers on at the moment with a, lo- a number of organisations who just haven't seen it. And partially both here on, in Australia and in New Zealand, we do have different influences. We don't have huge population bases. You know, you jump into Shanghai and the world mm. is a completely different place. The same as in Hong Kong or, or even if you jumped into Nigeria. Mm. You know, that if, if you start looking across the world, these things are happen because the, the need for change is much more driven by social change. Mm. Here, the social structures haven't changed fundamentally yet. You know, we still have hierarchy. We still have this idea of traditional qualifications. We still have the idea of the picking order and work your way through. Mm. And so while we have startups coming in and disrupting, they're not doing it on the mass that they are in populations where the dominant of young people. And so I do think there's this complete complacency because you don't have to be onshore to disrupt anymore. Somebody sitting out there in, in Shanghai can equally disrupt a local organisation. internet connection, totally. Completely. And, you know, with a, with a smartphone and an internet connection, they're, they're off. And so th- that is the, um, the issue, is we just don't see the shift happening fast enough. And by the time companies are realising it's happened, the good people are leaving, they can't find the right talent, mm. and the actual structure of the organisation is not, it's not flexible enough to move. And so we get caught, and organisations are starting to get caught and also the number of people having to make jobs redundant because what they realise is the skill sets of the people who they haven't invested time and money into developing no longer fit the need of the roles mm. and the jobs and the people they need to bring in are on the outside. And, and that itself is highly disruptive. So there's two things I think about there. The first is I mean, if you were talking to a 17, 18-year-old who's about to graduate from high school, what would you be talking to them about in terms of the skills you feel they need to build in themselves to be as future-proof as you can be? So skills is an interesting word because actually what we do know is this new generation, so Generation Z, the 19 and unders, they are driven by a completely different expectation of what freedom is. And freedom to them is a job that works on their lifestyle. And that is the lifestyle that means something. It has purpose and value and it has social cause and it's they're looking at things that are fair and equitable. And so when you start imagining what is going to drive that whole generation, they have to go back to what really drives them. And so there is nothing to say they shouldn't go and do formal, train, formal training if that's what really gets them going. But actually, if they feel like there's something that they're still discovering about who they are, then I always suggest a gap year, work experience, go and find a company, work with a startup, give your time. It's better to spend six months giving your time in a startup that means something to you than to spend a year and a half in a program that means nothing. And, and so I think that's, that's the thing is make choice. You know, there's not 
just one option after you after high school. Mm -hmm. There are many options, and there are apprenticeships and cadetships, and there are work-based learning, and look, and of course, entrepreneurs. You know, there's never a better time to start a business than when you're young, mm. because you haven't got any of those those big responsibilities of families and mortgages and other things. It's a time where you can live lean. Mm. and actually dream really bold. The other question I wanted to ask you was about leaders. So there's sort of the young people listening to this and there's also the leaders going, what do I need to be thinking about in terms of how I change my leadership approach or the changes that I'm making in the way that I'm developing my people, hiring, you name it. What advice would you have for, for leaders right now in business? So the good thing is there is so much information about the future of work. There are so many studies. So there's one I really find fascinating around the study of millennials around that Deloitte's did. And... And basically, we already have two-thirds of employers around the world have flexible work time. So that means flexible roles. They hire people under the gig economy. They are looking at contractors in different ways. They are providing different types of hours, remote working. Now, if you look at who those people are who are given those, that flexibility to attract those great young people, it typically isn't the larger organizations. And so I think that there's a real risk for people who, uh, who have large corporations and organizations, that they are going to lose people really quickly. They're going to lose the very people who will be part of the journey going forward. And so there is such an abundance of information. They mm. really have to get great at researching. You know, there should be teams dedicated to saying, what do I need to know? Who's done the study? Where has the study come from? What are the, what's happening in our city, my country? What's happening in this part of the world? And it doesn't take long to realize that there is some massive mega trends happening right now. And all of those are affecting our future of work because actually it's driven again by young people and their expectations. And so if you're a senior leader, the thing is really to get amongst young people. There is really no other way around it. It means young representation on your board of governors. It means advisory boards being young people, customers who represent youth. And when I say youth, it's anything from 12 years old, you know, all the way through to say 25 and having this idea that it's not tokenism, but actually really listening, ears on. Like, what do you want? What do you expect? What should we be doing? And if you're talking to an executive team in, about user journeys and experiences and design thinking and agile and scrums and, and scrum masters, and they look at you blankly, they're in trouble. I'm just thinking for a few people there, they might be quickly reaching for a glossary and going, what are we talking <laughs> about here? But you're a woman after my own heart. I feel like, you know, this piece around making sure that I often talk to people about diversifying the people you spend time around because we, we get caught in echo chambers by virtue of our experience and our routine and you name it. And without knowing, we've all of a sudden just seen, you know, we think the customer experience is the, um, even just our own age group and the way that we interact with services as opposed to understanding, well, who's the different demographics and how are they touching our business every day and what are they frustrated by, where do they experience friction, what do we need to change to accommodate them better? Look, and I, I actually liken it to a pond that has no water running through it so it gets stagnant and green and horrible pretty fast. And that's what happens to us if we surround ourselves with the same people who agree with everything we say, we get stagnant. Mm. You know, we have no new fresh inputs, so we actually drink the same Kool-Aid, we all agree with each other and say it's all going to be fine actually put a bit of friction in 
you know, pulling the engineer from down the corridor and the person who's kind of that little oddball that's sort of sitting working in the company for the last five years and a couple of young people and some creatives and start having the same conversation and see where that gets to. Part of what I find really interesting about that too is I feel like it's easy to say that. It's a whole other challenge to lead. And one of the things I feel like we're, we're having to learn at the moment as leaders is going, oh, wow, you, you can't just say diversity. You've got to be able to create an inclusive environment where divergent opinion can come together and can be expressed and you can actually get into the throes of robust conversation. And I don't think that comes naturally to us. No, look, and look, I'm I'm closer to 50 than I am to any other number. So, and, and I'm sitting here and I've had to go through the most incredible transformation of the way I lead. Um, so I have just over 100 people and half of them are under 30. Wow. And they, I can tell you right now, they make the rules. And since they made the rules, life has got really easy, really simple, because actually some it was really interesting things the first one was no paper a paperless office that was my first challenge you know I like my reports to be printed out and then I realized what they were saying it's not about the environmental aspect which is great but saying as soon as paper you mean you're restricting information to those who have that piece of paper if you put everything in the cloud everything's accessible we all have the same information there's no chance of it being corrupted along the way but also full transparency. I was just thinking transparency and trust, yeah. So if, if you've got a document, let everybody in the company see the same document. You know, short of, you know, contracts and things that perhaps have no interest to them, basically everybody has the same access to everything. We know who's viewing, we know who's accessing it. You know, it's, it's great. So it's this idea where there isn't a hierarchy of who gets to know yeah. secret squirrel, moving to a much more open plan, flexible work environment. And, and it's really interesting because at the moment I've just hired uh, someone who, who's slightly older and and he just keeps saying, how do you keep track of everyone? Because sometimes I'm in the office and there's 60 people and sometimes I come in and there's six people. And, you know, he's like, how do you know they're working? Well, I can tell you the productivity of people when they're given flexibility, the privilege of having flexibility to work around their kids and their interests or their sick mum or whatever it might be, the reward is amazing. Mm. And we've just had, you may have heard in New Zealand, uh, an insurance company have gone to a four-day working week, got global recognition for it, huge success. We had them in a couple of weeks ago to do a talk. And, you know, again, a really bold strategy. Productivity lift is immediate. Yeah, right. And, you know, so they've been paid for five days, working four days. Productivity gains over five days. You know, so it's a lift more than the day they've lost. And I think we... we have to understand these it's all about outputs and not about how many hours in the week that we work um, we all work way too many already you know we we don't ever quite get offline for mm. many of us it's almost impossible and so this idea that you still have to be tied to a nine-to-five day and expected to be able to answer those calls on Sunday night or respond to that social media commentary in the middle of the weekend you know I think we've just got to be much more organic about these rules and and what it means to be employed in, in 2018 and heading towards, you know, 2020 before we know it. How uh, difficult or easy was that transformation in your own leadership style? Because part of what I think about is sort of, you know, um, we get very habituated over time with our leadership style. And as well, I think in the modern workplace, my observation would be typically we don't have great cultures of feedback. And so it can often be a real barrier to actually knowing how to make any changes because we never actually get the, the pointed feedback that says, actually, if we did this, this would really help me become more productive or what have you. How easy was it to open yourself up to that? It was terrifying. Uh, I, I, on the outwardly, outwardly looking, I was, it was smooth sailing. Okay, right. I was pedaling extraordinarily fast <laughs> beneath the surface. The, the catalyst for me was 
I'd had a, a lifetime of hiring people where the contract, you talk about what you'd expect in the contract, you, you, you negotiate over the contract in, in sort of verbal form, you'd document it up, send it to them, they'd sign it and send it back. And then I started hiring younger and younger people. And the contract would be the beginning of a negotiation, <laughs> even though you'd already talked through. They started asking and saying, well, you know, explain to me what is this culture of work and how much professional development do we get? And, you know, can we work from home? And actually, what social programs do you have and what do you give back and how much money goes to charity? And what kind of laptop will I have? And can I spend time on social media? And what I realized is that they were asking the questions that I was far too afraid to ask when I was young mm. in the equivalence of analog time. You know, I just took it that because I was young, that actually my value was just sign the contract. When I started seeing this change of behaviour, I thought, how am I possibly going to be in education talking about the future, not only about the future of adults, but talking about the future of youth and millennials and Generation Z, if I wasn't listening to them? So that was the, the kind of the aha moment for me. And it was almost overnight I started saying, okay, so everything I think to be true, I'm going to stop myself and go and ask the question for someone else. And very quickly I realised that I was literally operate in the same way I had been for 10, maybe even 20 years. And it was really interesting, actually, she'll probably kill me if she ever hears this, but one of my staff from many years ago, I've just rehired. And on her second day, I've kept in touch ever since. And she said to me, do you, do you remember what you said to me my first day at work like 20 years ago? And I said, look, I have no idea. And she said, you stopped me on, as I walked past your office door just after five o'clock and said, when I was your age, studying my first job, I would never have left before the boss. I honestly had heart failure to think that was me <laughs> 20 years ago. <laughs> this idea that I'd measure or even hold someone, reprimand them. It was a horrifying moment, but then this sort of realisation how far I'd travelled because all of my role models growing up were very staunch female bosses, mm -hmm. you know, who I was terrified by when I was young. I, mean, I had male bosses as well, but I sort of looked towards the female bosses as role models and they were working twice as hard as I am to get the traction. But they were scary because, you know, they, they held me to task. And I was mimicking in many ways the way I had been modelled under them. And when I realised that how far I'd moved just by listening, you know, it was something like, gosh, this is really is quite fundamentally a different process of leadership. And, and it's much more collaborative in the way we work. Yep. But also, uh, someone said to me the weekend, I had a phone call from a staff member just chatting and said, I just love working with you because the whole organisation, we can fail as much as we like and no one ever cares mm. because we own it, we fix it and we move on. And I wanted to ask you, I, firstly, I think that's awesome because um, it's so pragmatic. For people listening, I think sometimes we can overcomplicate these sorts of things and go, geez, what does a different form of leadership look like? And how do I morph to create a culture that young people are going to be really engaged in? And it's as simple as sitting down and asking questions with an intent to listen. And know. intent to follow out too. I think, you, you know, you can't yeah. just listen and turn around and go, thanks very much, I appreciate that, don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> you, you have to be at least committed enough to try it. And, and there's nothing in today's sort of minimum viable product world, there's nothing wrong with saying, even to your own team, I don't know if this is going to work, we're going to trial it. We're going to give it a go. And actually, you know, a month later, you can reevaluate as a team. Is it working? Is it working for the majority, minority? You know, what would we do differently? 
and and then you know you can again pivot and keep going. So it's 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 always fluid. There's sort of there's not sort of one set of rules and that's the rule for the year. And that might be uh, this might be piggybacking on what you just said there, but I think the the culture of innovation piece comes up quite a bit in conversation right now. Everyone knows that they've got to be adapting in some way, shape, or form. We all know we've got to be using the word innovative, whether we live it or not, is another story, <laughs> right? Um, but that piece around creating a culture where it's okay to fail that's something that I think raises the blood pressure of a lot of leaders going oh geez I don't know how that matches with my KPIs I don't know how I sell that story to the board or I don't know how I actually execute that in practice what advice have you got for setting up that sort of culture in a way that that serves or serves outcomes for the organization the starting point I think is to find a couple of projects and get self-forming teams so literally whatever way you communicate projects across an organization Hopefully it's through some form online channel. But whatever way that is, is to say this is a project. We need, say, 10 people. Who wants to be involved? This is the scope of the project. What do you think you're going to bring? Get the team together, toss it around, figure out who's going to lead it, how the skill sets, and trial that model of just having you know, a group of people who don't normally work together working on something and see the measurable outcomes. You could even do it against a traditional model of the team who would normally look after it. You know, it could be a marketing project and you might say, right, here's two teams. One's going to be a group of diverse people trying it out, seeing how they solve this problem, get the traditional marketing team together and see what happens. And I would bet my money on it that you always get a better result from the diverse team because they actually think more broadly, because their, their points of view are far more distributed across different communities and different experiences, different age groups, different ethnicities. Mm. You know, the, the outcome is always going to be stronger because the sum of the parts is so much greater than a bunch of people with similar backgrounds. One of the things I liked, I was watching a talk that you did the other day and you talked about the idea of knowledge redundancy and information having a use-by date. Mm. I think about that in, in light of what you were saying earlier about the importance. We've got so much information at our fingertips, but we're sort of being asked to use it or work with it in a different way to what we've traditionally done. Because you're right, you know, it's plentiful. It's actually about how we harness it. How is that going to change work and the way that we're... Um, or the way that people are having to skill themselves up to add value, I guess, as well. Yeah, I, I really like the idea of seeing knowledge as something that is constantly changing. Yep. And so recognising it does have a use by date because actually we're constantly finding better ways to do things and we're finding new solutions and new materials and new operations and new systems and new processes and nothing stays you know solid in its, in its original form. And so the encyclopedia view of the world where has a child was great if that was the only source of knowledge but now of course we can prove that hey that information is no longer valid letting go is a different thing mm. and actually we've just um launched actually i'll do a little plug a, a platform called digitalsuitcase.com which is for executives to understand the new world and so it's just a, a very very low cost annual subscription to get access to video content which we've created and curated for professionals who go i think blockchain and cryptocurrencies is the same thing but i'm not sure <laughs> And uh, the Internet of Things, I, I keep nodding my head when people say, yeah, and I'm kind of, no, I don't know what it is. And so what we found was this idea that we're really slow to put a hand up and say, you keep referring to this thing like, you know, machine learning. What on the earth is machine learning? We, we sort of see it as a weakness. And actually, instead of saying, you know, all the stuff I knew before has been replaced by these new words and new terminology, can you tell me what that is? Because the second that you start getting adults or grown-ups or professionals saying, you know what, I don't know what that is. Actually, let me know what it is so I can replace what I knew from before. And if, for example, artificial intelligence, and you can't walk anywhere without hearing it right now, 
everybody's view of artificial intelligence is so different. And again, it goes back to if your information you've locked down saying, yeah, I know what that is, you know, it just keeps changing. And so, you know, we've done this project to, in, in the process of building this platform, and what we found was there was a lot of nodding with mm. things that people didn't really understand, but very, very little kind of willingness to put their hand up and say, ah, can you explain that a bit more because I just don't get it. And I think that's part of this idea of redundancy, that we don't want to admit that we're redundant. And that's not the same thing. I think people immediately think, I don't know, then therefore I'm redundant. I'm not, you know, I'm not contemporary in my understanding. Instead of saying, I've got loads of experience. I know lots of things, but some of this new stuff, it's new to me. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think in, in so many ways, the, the definition of leadership and expertise we built in the industrial age was built around um, having the greatest sum total of knowledge. You, you were the, the deep 30-year expert and in 30 years you'd climbed you up the, ta- up the chain and part of your legitimacy and authority came from the fact you knew the answers. And so I think what's interesting now is we're saying it's actually about the questions. How often are you asking? How well are you asking? As opposed to I'm the sole repository of all their knowledge. Yeah, and, and I can always ask that question from, from parents and saying, well, how do you how do you keep up? Like, how is it that you manage to have all this information? And I said, look, actually, it's the easiest thing in the world is to be in the system and keeping up. It's a bit like fitness, I guess. Once you're fit, you know, it's easier to keep building on that. What I'm, you know, I think is that people, the longer they leave that gap between, you know, that fixed, I know a lot of stuff and I've stopped learning, that's the bigger that gap is, the harder it's going to be. So I think that there isn't, there isn't an option to opt out. Like, we can't just go oh, by the way, I think I'll just wait for five years and I'm going to retire. Mm. Because actually even the idea of retirement in itself is fluid, given we're all going to live to be so much older. But also thinking about if we're 85 and still somehow part-time working or volunteering or doing something, we don't want to be disconnected from all previous generations by technology understandings. Mm. So, you know, I think the key thing is to say at whatever step you have to take, the baby step to get back on that system of learning, the better it is for everyone. I love that analogy. I'd never thought about that way. Sort of like the longer you you don't exercise for, the harder it is to go to that first gym session again. And, and same with learning. It's so overwhelming because it just builds up in it your does. mind. It does. And I think, you know, the, the way I always say to people that every city in every part of the world, every week are meetups. And it sounds, you know, people go, meetups, it sounds a little bit dodgy, a little bit sifty, <laughs> what's going on. But these environments of, you know, meet up, meetups where you can go along and meet people and are talking about all sorts of things from you know, ancient history to origami to the latest in artificial intelligence. And you don't have to have any knowledge at all. You should just go along. It's social. You know, find those environments where you go in and go, I know nothing about this topic. Mm. I don't know anybody in this room. And now you're someone I'd describe as a serial entrepreneur. Is there a, a core bit of advice that you'd have from your own entrepreneurial journey for those that are somewhere on that journey themselves? Yeah, I think that the initial team is everything. You know, it's better to have two incredible people with amazing talent than to have six average people. Because actually, in the end, you want people who, first of all, are on the same journey with you, who you trust implicitly. Mm. But you also want people who have done it before. You know, they're not learning with you. So if I look back, what I've learned each time is the the skills I don't have are the first skills I hire. And I find the very best person I can, even the one I cannot afford, even if I say to them, will you do 20 hours a week for me and I'll pay you whatever I can, you know, so that they, I can't pay you full time, but I can pay you for half time. It's still better to do that than to have lots of, lots of people running around because actually 
those key people at the beginning are the ones who will dig in together and you can strategize together and then you can add great people. It's much harder when you've got a team who, you know, perhaps are doing it because it's a job. And I like to comment, uh, I heard or you say in a talk that you've given that um, basically the only thing stopping you from getting um, what you want or achieving the next level of success is the willingness to let go of what was and embrace what could be. How do you foster that that courage in yourself to continue to keep going bigger, more, different, better? Uh, the, the one thing I always say is I tell everybody what I'm going to do. The second I go on, okay, this is what I'm going to do, I tell everyone. So literally you know, I might be on a podcast or on a video or on television and I'm saying, this is what I'm doing next. And my team are sitting back going, you're what? <laughs> Where did that come from? <laughs> and so then I'm like, I've said it. You can now we have to, to do it. <laughs> and actually for me that works. I actually, you know, I literally put it out there. And yeah, going, nice. That is what I'm going to do. And now I'm going to figure out how I'm going to do it. And I start putting them out there again, test it by the team, see what they think, let it sit and simmer for a bit. In a week's time, I'll probably go back and go, okay, what do we think? I wanted to ask you, we've got a lot of teachers who listen to the podcast. If you could encourage the educators listening uh, to do one thing differently in the classroom next week, what would that be? So teaching teachers is the area that I think I could say I have the most expertise. So I have now in the last four years taught in a postgraduate program, four and a half thousand teachers. Wow. So the largest postgraduate education program in New Zealand's history. That's huge. Congratulations. And we teach it in, we've been now in 85 different towns and cities to wow. teach a postgrad. It's a, a 32-week program. Now, the reason I'm saying, giving so much detail is it's given me visibility into every type of school, teacher, principal, age level, demographic, and over four and a half thousand teachers, which is one in every 15 teachers in the country. The one thing I would say is let go because the, there is all your way through becoming a teacher, you're told how it is. It's very prescriptive, you know, the lesson plans and it's national sort of standardizations here and measuring and measuring by letting go and just looking organically at the class and actually saying, you know, if we've got a topic we're talking about today, who in the class has more expertise than I do? Maybe four or five students have got different points of view. And actually enabling, whether you're teaching five-year-olds or 15-year-olds, this idea that you facilitate the conversation. Because what it does is it sparks questions. And when you get questions, you get curiosity. And then the students themselves go looking for answers. The soon as you give an answer, it's a full stop. It means you are the expert they are there just to learn. I know a lot of people will be listening, we're going, but that's just impracticality doesn't work. I think it works amazingly. And it's something I really believe. The world is full of questions and actually our brains are wired in a way where we hear a question we don't know the answer to, we, we get curious. And so the hardest thing I think about teachers is, is that fear of technology, the fear of the demographic change, these digital kids. Most teachers, both here and in New Zealand, are 55 and female as average. You know, they've been teaching for a long time, incredible experience, and suddenly they're facing an entirely different environment. Uh, a good example in New Zealand, we've just added, we've got numeracy and literacy as the fundamentals of learning, and we've just added digital fluency. So we teach wow. computational thinking to five-year-olds as of this year. Now, that's fabulous if you know how to do it. You're one of these people who still are uncomfortable even using a laptop, and there's lots of people who've never been taught how to use a laptop or how to use a Google Doc or how to be used really search on the internet. 
all of these things feel really overwhelming. And I think that we've got to put much more focus on providing the time for teachers to learn. Because actually just expecting by some form of weird osmosis that they're going to know this stuff. So true. You know, it's because they're actually around like-minded people who may also have no more knowledge than they do. It's not like in a work environment where you often will have younger people to refer to if you don't have them or you've got an IT team or you've got someone coming in to do it. Teachers are packed their days with teaching. So, you know, I, I do feel it's one of the toughest jobs in the world to do. But I do think if they can just sort of just go sit back and look at the people in their class, and sometimes those really shy kids who maybe don't say very much, their passion will be sort of just peak up and mm. suddenly they want to drive a conversation. Final question, because I'm going to let you run to a dress rehearsal. Uh, if you could leave our audience with a call to action, what would you like to encourage them to do after they take their earbuds out from listening to this conversation? I think peel away some time of your week to learn. Now that means taking, turning off Netflix or watching maybe two less of your binge watching. Just take two less episodes out. And whether that be going along and attending an event, you know, so many free events. Go and attend events, something you haven't heard or thought about before. Going and hanging out with some friends in a different place or a different group of people. Joining something you've wanted to do. I don't mind if it's making pottery bowls. Just breaking the habit of doing things the same way week on week will spark your brain into doing things differently. Ideally, it will take you into following new passions and new beliefs and, and opening your ideas, but you do need to break the cycle of routine. Mm. And so I would just say, take you know, take out your earbuds, spend the next half an hour thinking about what was that thing that you've always wanted to do and you haven't done? Is it an Italian cooking class? You know, Is it learning a new language? Is it picking up the guitar from behind the door and putting sound to play it again? Because actually what happens is the neurons in the brain start sparking, you start thinking and doing things differently, and it's actually part of this wondrous journey of actually you know, learning and discovering. Francis Valentine, I feel really privileged to have had the opportunity to talk to you. Thank you so much for making the time, and thank you for the work that you're doing. I get so encouraged, um, and I feel so optimistic to know people like you are working with our education system to, to shake up the way that we are talking to and to bringing up our young people so that they are even better prepared for the challenges and the opportunities in the world that lies ahead. So thank you for the work that you're doing, um, and thank you for sharing your insights today. It's such a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organisation or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback, shoot me a tweet at Holly Ransom, leave a review for this coffee pod or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me.